This is The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery trainees from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear today, be sure to visit our website, theresonantreview.com, for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. Welcome back to the resident review. This is Rachel Hine and Hannah Langdell, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents. This lecture is a part of our series, Microsurgery Masters, which explores topics in complex reconstruction and microsurgery with some of the most national and internationally well-known microsurgeons. Today, we'll be discussing replantation with two big hitters, Drs. Urbanic from Duke and Dr. Bunky from the Bunky Clinic. Dr. Bunky is the medical director of the Bunky Clinic, widely regarded as the birthplace of American microsurgery. He received his MD from Georgetown University and completed his residency in plastic and reconstructive surgery at Stanford University, followed by a fellowship in hand and microsurgery at the Bunky Clinic, where he has been in practice since. Dr. Bunky is internationally renowned in the fields of replantation, management of mingled upper extremity, lower extremity limb salvage, and peripheral nerve surgery. He has served as chair of the Department of Plastic Surgery at the California Pacific Medical Center for over 15 years and has trained over 100 clinical fellows and over 120 residents. Dr. Bunky serves as president-elect of the American Society of Reconstructive Microsurgery. Also equally important, Dr. Bunky is a songwriter and bass player for his band Switchblade Nixon, who has notably opened for the Doobie Brothers. And then we have Dr. Urbanic, who's an orthopedic hand and microsurgeon. He received his MD from Duke and after serving in the Navy, returned to complete his orthopedic residency in 1969. Dr. Urbanic had an exemplary a extremely successful practice with funding from the NIH, as well as serving as chief of orthopedic surgery for 17 years. Dr. Urbanic founded the replantation program here at Duke in 1974 and is credited with over 1,200 replantations. He also developed the free vascularized fibular graft for avascular necrosis of the femoral head. He has over 300 publications and 13 published books. Among many honors and titles given to him over his tenure, he has received Master Surgeon from Duke, a living memory of an individual who has exemplified the ideals of Duke surgery. With the expectation that reflection on, on his illustrious career will serve as a guidepost for those aspiring to a life in the art and science of surgery. So thank you both for joining us today. All right, Dr. Bunky, I'm going to start off questioning you or just with a little question. Do you mind sharing with us a little about the Bunky Clinic and the history of the Bunky Clinic? Sure. Um, there are six of us in the in the group now that um, share call and and take care of uh, a variety of different things in microsurgery. But I think our the reason that we're we're together is because of replantation and being available to really sort of the western part of the United States for any sort of uh, traumatic injuries, uh, anything that gets chopped off, we try to put back on basically. Uh, and that all started from uh, the work that my father did when I was young. I saw a lot of this happening in my house where he was trying to replant rabbit ears and actually did after a while. And um, actually, I look forward to hearing about Dr. Urbanik's uh, work with, with my, my father early on because uh, I'm sure he's going to shed some light on things that I don't even know about. And I look forward to hearing that. Um, and then his, I think one of his major accomplishments was doing the, the primate toe to thumb transplant. He did two of those successfully and they both worked actually pretty well. And then that one went on to become a um, sort of a, uh, something that we do now sort of frequently uh, for thumb reconstruction, finger reconstruction. Uh, but it all started as a, a, um, as a, a dream that he had starting way back in the fifties when he recognized that perhaps we could put these small blood vessels together. And then he recognized that there wasn't really much in the way of uh, medical technology, especially the microvascular uh, needle and thread was the hardest thing to find. Everything was down to about 6.0 nylon. He had to make something that was about a 10.0 nylon. And uh, so he metalized various things that started out with a, the, the, his favorite thing was to take a little piece of thread from a, a a silkworm cocoon, uh, cocoon silk, and then 
make little holes and pieces of metal that were that he tapered down to needles and use that and then ultimately was able to metalize the end of the cocoon silk and then ultimately nylon and then that's kind of become the 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 uh, the important the most uh, that i think was probably the most important thing that he added to uh microsurgery was the the suturing uh and especially the micro suture and the technique and also his he was just persistent he knew that there was going to be it was going to be hard to do he took it took him 57 attempts at putting a rabbit ear on before he actually got it to work um so that was um I think that showed that he really had this vision, but he uh, it was hard to do. And ultimately, I think uh, Dr. Urbanic was there in those early years. I'd love to hear about that. Okay, well, thanks. Yeah, that's true. Uh, actually, that's what stimulated me to do, uh, do replantation. I, I heard your dad uh, present at the American Society to serve your hand in, in, I think, 1964, maybe 1966 also, when he talked about... Uh, uh, reattachment of uh, rabbit ears and also the uh, primate uh, toe to thumb and I was inspired by that uh, we went back I went back and we also started well first place we couldn't have done it without uh, his uh, microsurgery equipment you know it wasn't only the the micro suture and the micro needle but also some of the small uh, needle holders and, and dilators and things like that uh, that he developed. Bob Ackland at Louisville contributed some of them, but your dad really was the one that made these instruments. And that's, you know, was over what Alexis Carell put the first uh, uh, leg transplant in the dog in uh, six, uh, 1906, I believe. So it was like uh, 60 years. Uh, they had the microscope in 1960 uh, developed by Jacobson, but we didn't have the instruments. And your dad was a is to be credited with that. Anyhow, I went back and we put some rabbit ears on. We we were we wanted to see how long we could uh, keep them cool, and they would still survive. So we would uh, amputate rabbit ears, put them in a the refrigerator, leaving them in, in there for up to forty eight hours, and then see which one survived. <laughs> and believe it or not, uh, so we had all these rabbits with uh, ear, take one ear off and, and reattach it. So. We had a rabbit that won first place in the state uh, annual uh, fair. We, they have an annual fair here in North Carolina. And our rabbit, even though he had a little bit of a droopy ear, not much, but we knew it, but the judges didn't know. And he won blue ribbon first prize. <laughs> <laughs> the only rabbit to ever have is the ear attached to any animal, I think, to win the uh, first uh, prize so uh and, and we found that we could leave these uh, up to 48 hours actually and and reattach huh. along we didn't freeze them so as you know digits uh, uh can be uh, kept cool for 24 to 48 hours and there have been some studies where they've been kept cool for over 50 hours or so i, I but uh, we didn't we didn't really find that so I got all this from uh, from your dad, and he's the one that inspired me. Plus, in those days, we had a formal uh, banquet at the Hand Society, and I heard him talking about your music. Well, your dad and mom were the first two out on the dance floor. So it <laughs> <laughs> also inspired me and uh, my wife, Muff, to get out there and dance with the rest of the hand surgeons. I heard that uh, early on, um, I know my father was uh, when when he first presented some of this early microsurgical work that that uh, he got a lot of sort of pushback from hand surgeons saying that nobody would ever want to put fingers back on in the middle of the night. Do you recall any of that discussion? Yeah, no, no I do. They they and you know they still don't. That's maybe why you're seeing a declining number here. Uh, yep. The other thing uh, I learned from your your dad was. Uh, back in those days in San Francisco to be employed by uh, the government, uh, like a policeman or a fireman, you had to have uh, 10 digits. Mm. You know? So you had to have 10 digits. So uh, that would made it important if someone had their thumb cut off or their little finger to have it reattached if they wanted to be employed by one of the city government. Uh, mm. jobs. Most of the replantations as uh, still 
they were uh, done in centers that had uh, more than one microsurgeon, so you could share the load. But, you know, one individual, I don't know if you recall the name, Jack Tupper. Very well. He was in private practice, and he did them alone, really. Yeah. Jack Tupper was a very good friend and actually did do his... But, and we use that Tupper table quite a bit, you know, the, the one with the hooks and chains. We still, yeah. I mean, we credit Jack Tupper for designing that and using it. And I think that was a real helpful thing in, in microsurgery, especially replantation, especially replanting the thumb. You know, it's hard mm-hmm. to get to the older yeah. side of the thumb without the, the hook chains to pull everything over. Yeah, we, we modified that table and had to make it in, in our, uh, in our uh, shop. Uh, instrument shop so it was really modified after his after the tougher table good we'll have to get get one of those i've stuck myself with that tougher table <laughs> a couple times it's easy to do <laughs> um dr urbanic after you learned the techniques from senior dr bunky how did you get your practice started here at duke how did duke become a major center for replantation I actually pretty much taught my after I visited Dr. Bunky, but and uh, in the early, my early days, but I actually pretty much taught myself. Uh, you know, I started out working with a little rubber tubing and suturing, and then went to uh, small animals, uh, rats, and 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 cats, and uh, so, I, and I kept practicing and practicing, and then we. Uh, we had a surgeon's uh, son who was water skiing. This was in 1973. He was water skiing and the yellow rope got around his thumb and pulled it off and it went to the bottom of the lake and uh, eight skin divers found it. One of them them was his brother. They found it at the bottom of of White Lake and they they flew it up to Duke and the military, we didn't have our own helicopters and we have two of them now, as you know. But we flew him up in the military uh, helicopter, and that was really our first experience with microsurgery. And so uh, we uh, did it, worked all through the night, and uh, it survived. And that was, we've done over 200 thumbs since then, and none of them turned out better than this thumb. We reattached everything. In those days, you didn't talk about what you'd done in the operating room publicly because it was kind of unethical. So the newspapers Mm -hmm. and the TV and everything wanted to talk to us, but we wouldn't talk to them. We told them to talk to the patient. Well, so eventually it did come out and, uh, you know, it said Duke makes microsurgery history was in all the newspapers across the country and on TV, but we, not us talking, we let the patient talk. (laughs) A true story. uh, uh, so uh, a, a young uh, college student from South Carolina cut his thumb off and his little finger while working on the highway, and he went to the emergency room there in South Carolina, and they went. To, the surgeon went to throw his thumb and his little finger in a waste can, and there was an article in there, and he said, "Hey, they're putting these things back on up at Duke. <laughs> it's about the waste can." Wow! So they flew his uh, son up in a, in a private plane. And we reattached his thumb and little finger. And a week later, uh, Duke was playing in a football game against North Carolina State. And uh, our Duke uh, wide receiver ran 86 yards for a touchdown through the NC State team. And they called a penalty on him. But it so happens the head umpire was the father of the son I'd put the little finger and thumb back on. He waved off the clip. <laughs> oh, no. The, the father did it. So that was the greatest reward I ever had from microsurgery. Because yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, those are great stories. Thank you. Uh, we'll just switch gears a little bit. And will both of you talk a little bit about what your indications or contraindications are for replantation and about how far distal you'll attempt replantation? Well, we've become more and more uh, aggressive about putting parts back on. I think that uh, there was a period of time that when a, um, if it was a single digit and a badly damaged joint um, that we may consider not replanting, but we've had pretty good success now 
at replanting even single digits. The report results now from single, especially index finger single digit replants are pretty similar to the results that we get with just tendon repair. So we're pretty aggressive about trying to put fingers back on. It's very rare that we put a part back on and that a patient actually says, I don't want it anymore. I can't, you know, it happens maybe once every couple of years that pa patients feel that it's too stiff and it gets in the way theoretically gets in the way. Um, and, um, and also doing distal replants actually is, is actually a, can be a fair, relatively, even though it's difficult, it can be a relatively helpful operation for people to prevent getting end of uh, neuromas of the tip of the finger. Uh, you know, a great way to treat an, uh, a digital nerve injury is to put it into something that can grow into end organs. So, it's hard to do and they may be artery only and they may have to be in the hospital for a few days and, and uh, get some heparin and, uh, and um, maybe even blood transfusions. But uh, it also gives us the, the ability to, to practice technically how to do very small vessel repair so that we can do lymphovenous anastomosis. It kind of gives us the inspiration to, to do that, all that kind of work as well. So um, we have become, there's really, unless the patient is, uh, you know, uh, has comorbidities that keep us from doing the uh, long surgery, or if it's a part that's, that's too badly damaged, obviously, we look really at what targets are available in the, in the part. We spend a lot of time in the part trying to decide whether the part is worth putting back on. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and we will go back and actually do a lot of secondary surgery. If it's uh, the PIP joint's been destroyed, we will put a, a joint in the PIP joint later. And, and often people get 45, 50 degrees of motion at the PIP joint. That's relatively painless. And sometimes they develop a pseudarthrosis. So uh, most patients love having their fingers back on. Yeah, I, I go along with uh, everything uh, he said. Uh, you know, basically our indication, Jess, Number one is probably the thumb, and then the number two is uh, multiple digits. Number three would be mid-palmer when they cut through the palm. Or four would be uh, the wrist or forearm, and five, uh, a child, almost anything on a child that's been cut off, we try to reattach it uh, because, uh, you know, they get almost normal function and normal sensibility mm -hmm. back. And a lot we don't know until we're going to get in the operating room. Uh, uh, what you reconstructed or not. And uh, we wrote a paper on single digit replantations and we said uh, if the amputation's distal to the superficialis insertion, uh, then reattach it. If it's proximal, don't. But that's that's kind of a general rule. Uh, more often than not, we would, re re like Greg said, people came to get a replant, so we give them a replant. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, there are some indications that the patient's not healthy. They uh, uh, have arteriosclerosis, uh, mental condition, because some of them have cut their own fingers off, you know. And uh, a double amputation, although we've done those, but that's not a good idea, you know, two different levels, or a severely evolved uh, arm above the elbow. You know, back years ago, we used to do, well, one year, 1980 or 81, we did 150-some replantations in one year. Wow. That's one every other night, if you think about it. And so people would come to visit us and watch how we did it. I'd say, come stay one or two nights where you're bound to see one. So David Green, you know, from San Antonio, came up and stayed at my house. for. He was going to stay a week and help watch us do some replantations. So the first night, we got called at 7 or 8 o'clock when we were there at night, and I had a patient with two fingers amputated. So we reattached them both, took all night, and we went home, Dave and I got a cup of coffee and came back to look, make rounds on the, and see the patient. And the patient had gone into the DTs and spun his fingers around and pulled them off. <laughs> so Dave, seriously, oh David gosh. got on a plane right then, went back home, and never wanted anything to do with my <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you convinced him pretty quickly, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of differences. And I'm glad to hear Greg say that because, that, you know, you look in the literature now and they're saying people, they're, they're getting more strict about uh, indications for replantation and not. But the biggest thing, we well, you know we have one of our surgeons that had an amputated distal index 
And he's got a real problem with neuromas, even yep. though it's been revised. So you don't have a problem with neuromas when you reattach the distal tip. And as Greg mentioned, there are ways, uh, about the time I was to get out of the business, when we had them so far out distally, there were no veins. We would make a little stab wound in the pulp and put a little piece of rubber uh, drain in there and then soak it with heparin pledges because those are the ones that would wear where you couldn't find a vein. Even sometimes you couldn't find a vein and you had you could take the other artery and hook it into a vein. We've exactly. done that too. So yep. uh, I think the uh, distal tips are one of the most, just at the base of the fingernail, one of the most rewarding uh, type of replantation we do. Why do you think the indications, Dr. Bunky, go ahead, but why do you think the indications that are getting more and more narrow for replantation? Well, I think it's probably insurance based. You know, I think the, the insurance companies don't want us to do anything, basically. Um, so it's it's uh, and and these patients are not cheap. I mean, you probably have to do a couple operations on somebody that has a zone two replant will probably need some tenolysis and and work. They may develop a a, a, a non-union at the bone uh, fr at the fracture site if it's a comminuted fracture. But one point I want to make is that you know our country is much more conservative than certainly Asia, you know, Japan, Korea. China, they are much more aggressive about replantation and their results are really, you know, I think they're great. So I, t I, I, I look to them often to tr try to get some long-term follow-up on these, on uh, some of these difficult replants. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, replanting arms, I think that's a controversial issue. And then trying to decide what arm to put back on. And I think, uh, I don't know if you're gonna get into this, but I, I'd love to hear Dr. Urbanik's thoughts about this, but I think that uh, prostheses, prostheses are becoming more and more uh, functional, but you you still don't have the sensory feedback. So we're always trying to decide about whether the patient's hand, ultimate hand function after replanting a mangled arm is gonna be better than the, the potential for prosthesis. and. Um, you know, I still think that a even a hand that has some sensation that has some pinch is better than a, a prosthesis. But I, I know it's controversial, and I'd um, we have some prosthetists that we work with, but I don't think that uh, prosthetics have advanced that much to the point that we can say that uh, prosthetics are like lower limb replantation. I think we're we're pretty convinced now that you know the the lower limb prostheses do pretty well. So lower limb uh, in a crush injury, um, th that might be a little less, uh, we might be a little less interested in replanting that compared to an upper limb crush injury because of the prosthetic, um, you know, it's, it's a less complicated prosthesis for the lower extremity versus the upper extremity. You know, you, there's a lot of function in those upper extremity prostheses that you don't really get. And sometimes the, even the, the, the mangled hand that has some sensation in it is better than a prosthesis. Anyway, I'd love to hear your thoughts, Dr. Urbanik. Well, those are good points. Uh, probably over half the people that have an upper extremity uh, prosthesis of some time, no, no matter how mild it is, over over half of them, they don't wear the prosthesis if it's above the elbow. Below the elbow, that's a different story. And they function pretty good, but despite all the work, they still don't have a way to get good sensory feedback, which, there's a problem. So th that's why I think like upper extremity sometimes is maybe a contraindication, but it, again, you got to take them in the operating room, look at them, see what you can reconstruct. I, I put a, a arm back on a, it was above the elbow amputation on uh, a young uh, girl, 17 years of age. She went through the windshield of a truck and uh, we reattached it. She went on to Duke nursing school, graduated in the top five of her class, came and worked for me, married an orthopedic surgery resident, and she's now an advanced nurse practitioner in the, a sports medicine clinic at Duke. And her arm functions, uh, you wouldn't know it had been reattached to her. She has maybe a little ulnar nerve uh, intrinsic atrophy, but it works fine. And uh, so I, and this was, a, you know, going through a windshield and everything, it's kind of a little bit of a mangled arm. So I'm in favor of giving it a go above, even above the elbow, because, uh, as I said, over half people don't wear their uh, 
prosthesis, although they're, you know, they're, they're getting better, but, but not a whole lot better. And yeah, exactly. They haven't made a whole lot of advances in 50 years or so. And you can't say we really haven't made with what it's been 60 years now. So we started reattaching digits and I don't say we've made a lot of advances really. I think that the advances are that they're being done at a place uh, like the monkey clinic where you got people doing, uh, uh, the the replantation experience and maybe they have a lab where they can practice. You know, I read, I was kind of surprised at this. 44% of hand fellows, 44% have not participated in a replantation. Wow. That's, that's in this country. Yeah. So, uh, that's, that's kind of amazing to me. I would have thought. So, you know, with that in mind, I, I favor uh, centers. Uh, uh, the, and, and maybe that's why that some of them are better. And, you know, the reports, the European the Europeans and the Asians, are they report a little better functional uh, outcomes than we do in the United States. Although all of yours are, mine are all 90% good. <laughs> there you go. Mine too. <laughs> all right. So once we're in the operating room, will you walk our listeners through what your order is for repair and kind of your technique for bony fixation, tendon repair, and just walk us through kind of your decision-making process uh, in the operating room? As well as tools. Can you guys talk a little bit about what you have in the OR that is extremely helpful to the to replant? Okay. Well, since I did mine a long time ago, it's been over 12 years since I've done a replantation. I'll start and let... Uh, let Greg tell us how we've improved. But, well, first place, what one person takes the amputated part, one or two people, and they go, they clean it up, and you got to make sure it's debrided, and uh, and they start looking for the vessels and and the uh, nerves and the tendons and 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 isolate them, and the other person uh, prepares the uh, stump part. And then uh, we, the order that I used is fix the bone first, fix the extensor tendon, fix the flexor tendon, fix the artery, and since the nerve's right next to it, fix the nerve, and do the vein last, and then get uh, some kind of skin coverage. Uh, some people fix the vein first, but I and I had done that some. The problem with that, you may fix the veins and then you can't find a good artery that works together and your artery doesn't work, so you wasted all that time. Uh, so I didn't want to waste time because it, you know, it was time consuming enough. Uh, so I, that's the kind of the sequence uh, that I did. I'd like to hear from Greg now what sequence he used. Sure. I, I don't think we do much different than that. I think the two-team approach is really important. I think they, uh, you know, our patients come from far away. Usually, and the patient arrives in the ER, the part is in the ER. Somebody, somebody can take the part, and we have a special tagging table in the operating room where we, uh, you know, split the finger, look for the, um, the, the neurovascular bundle, look for a vein. Uh, we might even put K-wires, might put half of a a, uh, a stitch into the tendon. So the part is ready. And then the, 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 I'm sorry, the, the amputated part is ready. So when the patient comes in the operating room, you know, we put them to sleep and then under one, the key, I think that we've done in the last uh, probably 10 to 12 years has been trying to do everything under one tourniquet time. So it, in the, in early days, when I was first started microsurgery, we would put the first finger on and actually let the tourniquet down to, to get see how the perfuse, how the vessels perfused and make sure that we had cut back into proper uh, vessels so that we'd get good flow into the part. But then if it was a multiple finger replant, you know, the, then it would be a bloody mess trying to put the, the, the other two fingers on. So now what we do is we can usually get three fingers, most of the volar portion of the, vol, uh, the fingers done 
under one tourniquet time. So before the tourniquet goes up, we'll put the K wires in, even in a bloody field, we might even do the tendon repair. And then we put the tourniquet up and then we try to do as much as we can on the volar side. So we'll do a vessel repair, nerves on both, all the fingers. And hopefully you haven't gone past maybe two to two and a half hours of tourniquet time. And then you've done, sometimes we can even get all four done under that um, if it's multiple fingers. And then you release the tourniquet and then you get flow into the part and then you get bleeding out the back. So I think it's much easier to see veins that are bulging. You know, then you can see the vein, you can see the corresponding vein on the opposite side. So we, in a bloody field, we do the tendon repair, which is not so hard to do. So do the extensor tendon repairs and then, and then look for veins, which actually is, is usually when you're exhausted because uh, it's it's usually late at night. It's about five thirty in the morning at that point, and you're tired. And but that the vein is actually the probably the hardest part of the operation to do, and um, and it's critical. I mean, it's uh, if you don't get the vein done, then you're you're bleeding these pa- these poor patients. If they if the vein you know if they have an artery only and it's a big finger, um, then you're going to have to leech. You're going to have to caponize them and. So it's really worth spending that extra effort, even and even getting another team in if you can, if you're exhausted, to help get the veins done because they're really important. And we tend to do one artery uh, and one vein. If we do have to do two arteries, we might do a second vein, but one really good vein outflow is probably enough for each finger. So that was my next question. You said you do one artery typically per finger and then one right. vein. And right. then my other question is how much of a skin bridge I guess you just assess the perfusion then after you take the tourniquet yeah. down to determine whether to do a vein or not. Cause my question is always how much of a skin bridge is enough before you're looking for a vein? I mean, sometimes you can look in the skin bridge, you know, and, and see that there's actually a vein that's flowing pretty well, but if it's badly crushed, sometimes you have to find a vein. It's, it is a, that's a, uh, that's a, experience decision, you know, about whether you do the vein, it's better to do a vein, you know, if you're, you're unsure, it's better to just try to do a second vein or skin bridge plus a vein. There's no downside. Yeah. Our, our philosophy is pretty much the same way. I better, we kind of went with two veins, one artery if possible, but I agree with Greg. One, one good vein is better than two. So, so veins. Great. Uh, we didn't answer the question about the bone. It sounds like you're still using K wires. I thought, yeah. because by, by far, most of the replants I did, we use cross K wires or to tip a double uh, uh, longitudinal. I yeah. thought almost everybody would be using some type of mini plates or something now. We did use some of those little H plates, but they took, you know, you, were, you wanted to move along and get going. Right. And you were really good at putting these little plates on. That's okay. Yeah. But, uh, if it takes a, a while, because you can put a zip, you know, there, you, you, your K wire, you're done. And we had uh, uh, over 1,200 replantations. We had very few non-unions. Mm-hmm. Require, some of them may have had a non-union on x-ray, but they didn't require any treatment. Correct. Uh, I bet you could count them on one hand the number of, of non-unions I had to go back and do something to, probably on one finger. We just It's a rarity. Yeah. One technique I liked a, a lot was my favorite. If you had a thumb cut off was to... Uh, Put a screw in, intermedial screw, cut the head off, and screw the thumb on. Oh, oh, that's cool. No, no, that was quick. You just you took a tap and went down the thumb and the back the other way, and then screwed screwed in the intermedullary, cut the head off, and just screw the thumb right on. That's, it was really that's awesome. What do you think about? So it sounds like both of you do the same kind of bony fixation with K wires. It's fast and reliable. I've heard a lot of centers do surclage wiring. Have do you have any experience with that? What do you think about that? Well, I, I did some because I read about them. Saw uh, that uh, you know you put them in one on one side and one on the other, uh, at 180 degrees apart. Uh, it, it took a little longer. That's all. I could almost put a plate on faster. I did a few of those. And I read an article here a few years ago or so that they, the surclage wire had the highest percentage of union. Um, I think that uh, I agree with uh, Dr. Urbanic. I, I, the incidence of non-union is so low. K-wires are so much faster. The only time that we think about doing a plate or, or a um, 90-90 wire is if it's a very sharp cut through the proximal phalanx, 
sometimes putting K wires in that situation is a little bit difficult, um, but it has to be a really sharp cut. Um, and uh, but otherwise, I think K wires are are plenty. Okay, I was just going to ask about uh, flaps at the time of replant. Is that something that you would consider? Well, I, I think the, the one of the things that we have uh, have uh, become very has become very popular with us is using a, a venous flap, you know, from the the distal wrist for as not only for coverage but also for a flow through, like in a ring avulsion. Oftentimes the the skin on the volar side is torn and damaged from the ring itself. Interestingly, it doesn't seem to bother, for some reason, it doesn't seem to crush the dorsal skin as much as it, it de destroys and devascularizes a big area on the palmar side of the, the proximal phalanx. And we can often take a, a, you know, just a small venous flap that we can use as a not only a skin coverage for that air. So we may resect a, a, a big section of of skin on the volar side of the the um, the the, the uh, ring avulsion, and then resurface that immediately and use the skin as not only coverage but also flow through. Your venous, yeah, yeah, it's a venous flap. Mm -hmm. um, so it's uh, you know artery vein artery or artery vein you know, artery, vein, vein, and artery, so that we get, um, you know, really good perfusion of that that flap. And they do really well. I mean, that, it's an easy thing to do. It's right there. You know, you'd be taking a vein graft anyway in that situation. Then you don't have adequate soft tissue coverage over it. And then you might be putting an allograft or something there that you want to get, you want to get something covered over that area uh, because there's often a defect in the nerve as well. That was my next question is how often would both of you vein graft? You know, do you attempt primary? I mean, I know there's all these different mechanisms, whether it's sharp, avulsed, crushed, but how often do you find yourselves digging out a, a vein for vein grafting for these digital replants? Well, my, my philosophy was when in doubt, always use a vein graft. They're so easy and quick to do. And you, it could have somebody else be harvesting one. And, and then if you didn't use it, in fact, we would do that sometimes, harvest them put on tape when needed and we get them but, but to suture something under tension is not what you want to do you know exactly so when in doubt uh, vein grass because they're so easy and quick to do they have experienced microsurgeons that can do uh, uh, the work uh, pretty rapidly like uh, greg you heard him talk about those multiple fingers and doing them all under one tourniquet that's that's kind of amazing i, I have to say i probably didn't do that I mean, I think that that for us has saved us so much time in the operating room. It, it now it used to be like two to three hours per finger. Now it's probably half that time because you're doing it without a turn, without that crazy blood flowing everywhere. It drives you crazy. Um, the, and uh, on the vein graft issue, I, I think that it's so much easier to put a vein graft, even though you need two nastomoses, you know, you're doing it in, in healthy tissue, in a healthy vein, rather than trying to uh, you know, bring the finger back into a, uh, you know, flexed, and then you're putting it under tension, and it always tears through the these you know injured um, vessels. So it's it's main grafts. I think we use copiously. Um, so for ring avulsion injuries, do you think that type three avulsions should be discarded? Dr. Banik, I know you have that famous paper on it, but I kind of want to hear the different thoughts about this. Well, you know, we can we kind of did a classification of ring avulsion injuries. Number one, uh, class one, they didn't need a, a vascular repair. Class two, they needed a vascular repair. It may be vein or artery or both. And some people went on to buy that into A and B, uh, artery or vein. And then class three were the uh, severe avulsing type, uh, uh, maybe pull the tendons loose and with a fracture and everything, or maybe a bone destruction. And we said, don't re reattach those. Now, again, that was a, a general rule uh, uh, because we didn't get really good motion with it. But as uh, uh, Greg said, you know, you can go back and do a tenolysis on it. But, so we, that was our rule kind of we, uh, from the experience we had. We wouldn't uh, reattach those. But I had a group of uh, Japanese uh, business one time, and uh, there was about eight or nine of them with their cameras. And so uh, uh, I, I wasn't even on call. One of the other microsurgeons were on, 
So he was going to uh, re do an amputation revision. So we had all these Japanese here that came to watch us do microsurgery. So I took it to the operating room and uh, revascularized it. And my partner was so upset <laughs> because that, we made these rules and he wanted to know why I did this and everything. I said, well, you know, we had to put it on the show for the, our guests. <laughs> so uh, it, it, it's... It depends. You know, you're more likely to do it in a child or uh, it depends on the individual, I think. You, uh, how about you, uh, Greg? I, you, it sounds like you uh, reattached these type three ring avulsion injuries. Yeah, I think we're we become more and more aggressive with it. I think the venous flap has helped us a lot because I think that those, you know, I I can't I live through all of these uh, these where you put a vein graft all the way out distally out to almost to the trifurcation and all of this volar skin was bypassed and it had to have retrograde flow from this, this vein graft. And you know, the, this would die a very slow kind of death over about two to three months. And those were horrible pain. And I felt so sorry for those patients. And so the art philosophy was really, you know, if there was, it was, you're really going to be bypassing a lot of the volar skin and it was, it was, but uh, that we didn't really think about replanting the finger. However, now that we have this venous flap that we can put in and kind of resurface the whole volar side of the skin, which is really, I think it was a game changer for us. And, um, and, and that's, that's really it. I think the, they do get stiff and they do, but if, if you can, Certainly the ones that are evolved off and then you just lose the distal tip of the finger, um, then you can fuse the DIP joint. And if you still have a PIP joint, a supplement that's still intact, I, I think that it's it's worth doing. Granted that you may lose some of the soft tissue and that is really going to be the issue uh, long-term is whether, how much of that soft tissue is so badly damaged by the evulsion and how much of it gets bypassed with your vein graft and not the if you don't use venous flaps there, I think that you can get into trouble with a very stiff finger that needs you know all kinds of soft tissue reconstruction uh, later. So the, it's it's a complicated um, situation. I think each case has to be kind of looked at separately, and you have to really look at the targets within the the part itself before you you make a decision to throw it in the bucket. So y'all understand what he's talking about with that. Yeah, that, that was the problem. You, you get necrosis because I, I didn't use the venous flow through frat in the, uh, until the very end of my uh, uh, surgery career. And what would happen is you'd bang graft and go all the way out the tip, but all that skin on it in between would, would die. And then you'd have to manage that. Yeah, I didn't. I had never seen a venous flap till I, I actually visited Bunky last month and I got to see the first one I've ever seen. It was. Pretty cool, awesome. actually. Great tool to have in your armamentarium. Pretty easy to do, don't you think, too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> not only that, it was Maybe. fun. It was fun. I, I loved it. You know, I, I love doing those things. We didn't answer one question you'd answer, Rachel, and I'm going to let Greg, since, since he's the modern surgeon, any different equipment than we used to use? Like, what's your go-to if, if you had a replant tonight? You know, if I was doing my first replant as an attending surgeon, what are the things that you kind of must have and besides your basic set of equipment? Is there something that is very helpful for you? I know we talked about the, the Tupper table for thumb replantation, but any kind of tricks as far as tools you need in the OR? I mean, I think um, all the typical micro stuff, I think for small vessels, you need the super micro uh, uh, equipment. I think that's really changed a lot of our ability to do you know, 0.3 millimeter vessels and, you know, the stuff that we're using now for lymphovenous anastomosis, I think that that's really helpful for pediatric or small distal replants. Uh, I think that's a helpful uh, tool to have in your arm. I think, um, you know, for an arm replant to have, um, we have these T-shaped shunts that we use uh, that we put in and that you can have a heparin, uh, lure locked heparin on the, on the end so that you can, you, you know, a lot of times you're, you're, um, you know, you're behind the eight ball time-wise mm -hmm. with ischemic muscle. So you're trying to get this, this arm perfused as quickly as possible. And unfortunately ours come from a ways so they can, they can, there can be a time constraint. So what the first thing we do even before uh, bony fixation or anything is to get the shunt in and then perfuse the part 
as quickly as possible, recognizing that they may, you know, we always have the anesthesiologist ready with blood, maybe even blood in the room or start hanging blood right away because there's going to be ton of lousy, you know, uh, poorly oxygenated, uh, bad blood that comes out of the venous system once you hook up this, this, this shunt. So we know that they're going to probably bleed a unit or two before you hook up the veins. But at least once you have that going, you've got a perfused hand that looks kind of pink. And then you can start thinking about, you know, doing your fixation, you know, tendon repairs. And then, then once the blood looks sort of normal color as it's coming out of the venous side, then you start thinking about the, the venous repairs. Um, but, you know, that, again, they're, they're going to lose a ton of blood. So you have to be prepared. You have to have like four, couple units in the room and four or five units ready to go after, during, um, in the blood bank right there next to the operating room. What about any uh, type of uh, approximator, vascular or nerve approximator? I mean, we, is the Aquin clamp still around? Or? Yeah, we're, you know, um, we, we're a kind of two of us on either side of the microscope are usually, we don't really have to use much anything other than a, a seraphin clamp and a um, and some beamers uh, is that's pretty much all we use. We haven't really changed that uh, in that regard. Really, things have not changed that much from a from those the uh, you know jeweler's forceps. I think that the big thing was that maybe the super fine tip uh, equipment has been helpful for really small stuff. And Dr. Urbanic, we still use the Aquilin clamps at Duke. That's our go-to. So, And I think that's helpful if you're doing things by yourself. Usually we have, you know, a fellow or a, another attending that's that's pretty capable to hold things in position. I'm often holding things so that people can do their repairs. And um, I think the allograft has been, an, uh, the nerve allograft has been helpful. I think that's that's been an, an addition that we've been doing for the last, you know, eight, 12 years or so. Um, and I that we use those frequently for nerve gaps. See, I used, I went and got the medial antibrachial cutaneous. Uh, and we were, we often used. And, they, and they're, you know, after about nine months or a year, they didn't realize they had a part of their nerve was taken. Most of them recovered from very well. Can I ask a little bit more about arm replantation since we're talking about it? What are some of the like tips and tricks? Because I mean, I guess I've seen a couple, I've seen them go really poorly. I've seen them go really well. So, you know, do you always take these patients back for a second look for debridement given the, you know, the muscle that's ischemic, you know, you shunt first, obviously. Um, but the ones that I've lost have been to infection. So. Aggressive debridement is key, uh, especially the part, you know, if it's through the arm or avulsion, the distal part, but all that distal muscle, unfortunately, is all being perfused retrograde. So that that lot of that muscle is going to die. And I think that um, and I think leaving dead muscle, dead bone is probably the, the site of your infection. I think that, you you know, um, uh, Godina was really a, a somebody that was a that really talked about aggressive debridement at the time of the uh, the initial injury. And and we've taken that to heart. And we used to, I left the wounds open and used a lot of mesh grafting, you know. I have to say, if you look at the, my post-operative patients, they've, they've got a big open area here if we're covered with uh, split thickness mesh graft. And I think that makes a, a lot of difference. I've seen, I've seen revascularizations done and they failed because they were closed too tightly. I don't mean done by us. I was having sent from somewhere else. That was, uh, they were failed because they tried to close the wounds. And, and you know, you ask about flaps, that's somewhere I, we swung flaps around that. If you had an amputation elbow or something like that, and a lot of loss of tissue, we would swing some various flaps to get coverage to yeah. done that on upper extremity replantations. And I, and I agree with that. I think that, um, I think the key is debridement, you know, multiple takebacks. I mean, every day or every other day for a while to make sure that you're debriding. Uh, you may have a vein graft that's sticking out there in, in, in the air. You know, you might have to put a, 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 a skin graft just as a temporary coverage or something to, to keep the, uh, the vein graft moist so it doesn't blow out. 
And then, you know, once you're adequately uh, debrided and you're sure that you're not going to be covering something, then to consider a flap to get, you know, initial coverage of all your nerve repairs and, and vascular repairs. So that has to be part of your armamentarium. It may take a week or so before the patient is ready for that, but that's got to be kind of in your, your battle plan for these big crush avulsion injuries. Let me ask you, Greg, uh, what about post-operative management? Does that change anything? I'll tell you what our kind of routine was that uh, our, our patients uh, got aspirin and persantin and we believed in dextran, low molecular dextran back in those days. And you know, there's been some research work that shows it's good. So we uh, we would start them on low molecular dextran when as soon as the arterial uh, repair was done. And uh, they, I don't think they use it anymore there, but that's what we did. We also, most of our patients got Thorazine, chlorpromazine, yep. which is a peripheral dilator, but also uh, the anxiety, you know, particularly when you went to look in their dressing or something. And, you know, one of our biggest failures uh, were, uh, percentage-wise, were in uh, teenagers, young teenagers, 11 and 12 or 13. They, they would develop vena uh, vasospasm. Uh, it's, you know, said that their, uh, their vascular system is more labile than the adult. Yes. And so we made sure that they had on chlorpromazine. And uh, we didn't, the only people that got heparin were the ones that we had a difficult time getting flow. And we, we put some of them on heparin, but we basically didn't use heparin. What, what about now? What do you do? So I, we do exactly the same. Persantin is not something we've used. And I've just written that down as something to think about. Uh, we were big dextran users, as you were. <laughs> and for some reason, that kind of there was a period of time, probably about seven or eight years ago, that Dextran, we were having trouble getting Dextran. And um, and then so that, uh, and then we were having trouble getting the, the test dose for Dextran. And there is a, we had some problems with uh, some react, you know, reactive airway, um, some allergic reactions. Actually, one patient um, went into shock on the operating table. We, we didn't have the test dose. And theoretically with dextran, you have to give a little test dose and see how they react to that before you give the, the full dextran. We didn't get the test dose, we were giving dextran. And so over the last probably five, six years, we have not used dextran at all. And I think our results are probably the same, but I would say that we have used dextran for close to 30 years up to then without significant problem. And I think dextran- Persantin. We yeah. got from the cardiovascular surgeons. Yeah. And they did their uh, vascular grafts. So they put them on percentin. I mean, they did back then. So that's where we got the idea from. And we uh, kept, you, you know, it's like snapping your fingers to keep the tigers away. We were afraid to stop snapping our fingers. So we Exactly. <laughs> Very good point. Snapping the fingers. Yeah. Uh, Persantin, so aspirin and Persantin kind of work the similar. They're both antiplatelets, right? Yes. So um, heparin, we have become, um, you know, fairly significant users of heparin, especially in finger replants. Larger replants, we're a little afraid of the amount of bleeding that, that can take place. So we're a little hesitant to do that. But certainly in finger replants, we will always start them on a, a low dose of heparin. Um, usually about 500 units an hour with a bolus and then titrate up as needed. We use a lot of medicinal leeches. I think those are helpful. And that's, that's really it. I think heparin is still, a, and luckily we haven't had significant problems with heparin reactions. So, uh, and I knock on wood for that because I know it happens. You know, um, the leeches are uh, grown right up the street from us. And did you, did you know that? You know, no. Yeah, and I, I had a, a patient who had lost both thumbs. He was the last Civil War injury. He was defusing uh, b bombs down in uh, Fort Sumter, South Carolina. Uh, old Civil War bombs, and they, they blew up in his hand. He uh, lost both thumbs. Wow. Of course, these were blast injuries, so we did reattach them. But one of them had trouble, so I put leeches on it. And I was making rounds, and the, my lady next door had a, a hip procedure, and she was complaining <laughs> to me, said, there's spiders in my bed. There's spiders. <laughs> and I said, lady, don't complain. There are leeches in the next bed. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
that's funny. We have, they do tend to run away sometimes. I know. What are your indications? I mean, I know we use leeches for venous congestion, but how liberal are you with them when you see a patient? When do you start them? Do you start them right away? Do you start them after you've titrated heparin and you're not seeing anything or? I mean, we're, we're pretty aggressive at using lead. They're pretty easy to get here. You know, the pharmacy, we used to keep them actually in the fellows room. And then uh, finally the pharmacy could figure out how to charge for them. So they, they took over. Um, so the, um, we're pretty good at using them anytime we think that there's any venous outflow problems, you know, if it's swollen or, uh, you know, you could some blueness to it. Uh, and they've been pretty helpful for us. Have you ever had an infection? They carry one bacteria. I've forgotten what yeah. it is. You know, yeah, Aromonas. Yeah, we did, we had a ton of them early on. We when we, early '90s we started using leeches pretty aggressively, and then we'd have this weird, filmy sort of a uh, almost a mucusy kind of infection. And it turns out that it's a, a bacteria called Aromonas hydrophila, yeah. which is a a part of their their gut flora which is not covered by first generation cephalosporins. So we had to kind of boost that we, we figured we, it had to be third generation cephalosporins and some of the other newer antibiotics we had to start. We have to change over to those antibiotics once we start people on, um, on that. We actually had a funny story. We had a, a poor guy, uh, it was a nurse. We were doing a, 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 an educational video on how to use leeches and he he volunteered to be a let the leech bite his finger, and he got the worst aromonas hydrophilic. It lasted yeah. about six weeks. Poor guy. So um, we 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 we're concerned about the aromonas. Aromonas is is a fairly significant uh, bug, and you have to treat it well aggressively. Yeah. So one of the last topics I wanted to make sure we we got to was. Uh, options for thumb reconstruction besides replant, uh, such as toe to thumb, and how you discuss this with patients and, and what your thoughts are uh, for toe to thumb. Well, I'll tell you what, my, my favorite orthopedic procedure, plastic surgery or orthoplastic, whatever you want to call it, was a wraparound procedure, mm -hmm. which I learned from uh, Wayne Morris and Bernie O'Brien when, when I was over in Australia. And I really like to do that. And we modified it to some. So if you did lose it, the patient didn't really lose. They lost the eight uh, millimeters of their great toe. That's all. So I like to wrap around it in the, the adult. Now, in the, in the uh, child born without a thumb, the congenital absence, uh, the index polycization uh, is my favorite procedure. And, what, and the way I did it, it was mainly what I, I learned, how I learned from uh, Mary uh, Beth Ozaki, she, she, I think, I like the way she does it better than all the other systems that have developed over the years. So, so I I'm, I'm, was not a great uh, second toe like they do in Europe, like second toe to thumb, because to me it looks like a second toe up there, you know. Doesn't look good. Now, unless you have somebody that has a, a constriction band syndrome where all the digits are small, then the second toe is all right up there. But I, I was a wrap around if I could. I, I, I probably made an error in judgment on a couple toes I did where I took the whole metatarsal, yeah, whole metatarsal and transferred it up for somebody missing the base of their thumb. They, they weren't happy with their foot afterwards. So, you know, most people you take a uh, great toe out and put it on there uh, to make a thumb. If you look at uh, some of the studies, uh, over half the people have a problem with their foot one way or another. But I, I would do a classic toe-to-thumb on some people, realizing they may have a problem with their foot later on. Over half of them, or about half of them, have problems with their feet. Greg, what's your favorite toe-to-thumb? Well, I mean, just the, the, the regular, we, we use the wraparound frequently, especially if there's a situation where there's a, um, you know, it's a, an avulsion and there's still a distal phalanx left in a, a certain, that's like the ideal, perfect situation for a wraparound. Yes, exactly. That's what we've done too. That's a perfect situation for wraparound. Otherwise, I, we usually do the, the, the great toe, granted, um, you know, the toe is amputated at the uh, tarsal, um, the metatarsal palangeal level, but 
you know, we have not had that significant a problem with with foot problems. I don't know whether, you know, they we, we they use different shoe wear or if it's uh, I'm not sure. But our, most of our patients don't really have too much trouble. They sort of instead of walking on the great toe ball of their foot, foot they tend to put a little bit more weight on the second toe, which tends to be a, a more of the weight bearing of the the foot anyway. So. People who have had problems with their knees may have some problems. If they've had medial meniscus problems, we had a couple of patients who had, we took the great toe and they had some more problems with their knees. But uh, if if the, they don't like the the way the toe looks after a year or so, we can take a big sort of a chunk of the the inside here, take a, a wedge of this and, and narrow this down. And that often makes the, the thumb look a lot nicer and it doesn't affect the, the nerve supply. I think the biggest challenge is, uh, and you know, whether, whether it's a wraparound or a big toe, which we, uh, the whole toe situation, which we like, cause we can get pretty good IP joint motion out of the, the, that's the advantage I think to the whole toe. But I think it's the amputation, you know, at this level where you're you're at the CMC joint. I think that's hard. You can either use the the entire toe down to the metatarsal or, or tarsal metatarsal joint, which I agree is a pretty big deformity to the foot, and that those patients don't generally like that that much. But what we've been doing more recently is is doing it in two stages, where we you will do a fibula flap, either two stage or one stage, but generally in two stages, take a portion of the fibula, make a metatarsal with that and have a, a skin flap here and then come back and do a toe on top of that. It's two big operations, but it does create a really, a very functional toe. No, I like to do They, they have a fused, uh, fused MCP joint, but they have pretty good IP joint and pretty good CMC joint, even if you kind of make a pseudo MCP joint out of uh, the proximal portion of the fibula against the trapezium. No, I like doing uh, some type of toe-to-thumb reconstruction. I'm trying to think who the, the female plastic surgeon from Los Angeles. She reported on Bernie O'Brien and Wayne Morrison's uh, 30-some uh, toe-to-thumbs, and she reported on the complications. Uh, and eight, 18 out of 36, something like that, had a shoeing problem uh, or a walking problem, but it, it, it was uh, more than you would expect. That, that, that was their patients. And their, I think they complain more down in Australia. <laughs> I wanted to tell you a story about because we were, one time we, as I said, we did 160 some uh, replants a year in 1981. We were so busy one time we had three rooms going in the middle of the night, so I had uh, two thumbs off one of the different individuals, and I had four fingers off on another patient. Wow. I'm trying to figure out how to do all this at once. And so I was spending most of my time in with the, the thumbs. And this patient, one patient had L-O-V-E spelled on the back of their hand, tattooed L-O-V-E. <laughs> and so, you know, we're trying to match things up. And the next morning when we ended up, we had, he had to spell L-V-O-E. <laughs> we put the wrong thing. It looked good, but... Uh, <laughs> You'd think with that marker, the key on there, we would know how to do it better than that. <laughs> I guess to wrap it up a little bit, we can talk about thumb reconstruction more, but I kind of wanted to know in your, both of your experience, who does poorly after replantation? We talked a little bit about patients that have, you know, psychiatric illnesses, but is there any type level that you do where you feel like, you know, we talked about class that type three ring avulsions that are stiff who does poorly in your mind that you already know going in that you're going to have some work to do i mean i think the the person that's done it to themselves um and unfortunately uh there's a lot of people who have secondary pain for not doing well for whether it's a third-party lawsuit or uh you know, work comp or something like that. Unfortunately, that does have an impact on the, on their interest in getting better. And I'm, those, uh, those are unfortunate patients. They, they get motivated the wrong way. You know, uh, all, all the uh, patients that I've been involved with about halfway through my career, because uh, we reviewed them uh, several hundred. And do you know out of that several hundred, 
I only had one patient that requested to have the digit amputated after replant. So, you know, it was a couple hundred to one, really. Uh, So they're happy to have it back, even if it doesn't uh, function well. As I said, oh, the other thing is, I never had one, uh, and I wrote this in a paper, so it's not just something I'm trying to recall, that complained of pain, really. Yeah, pain is not. You know, you have stumps, they complain of pain. Right. Yeah, I think they do poor, worse psychologically if they don't have the part, even if the part, if the part replanted, even if the part, if they're, you know, they, they're depressed. I mean, in the Asian community, you know, if you don't, sometimes if you don't go to heaven with all of your stuff, then you're insulting your ancestries, you know, that you haven't been able to live your life with, without uh, taking everything with you to heaven. Mm. Oh, it's uh, Japan too. Uh, four is an unlucky number. That's like our thirteen. So uh, they want uh, five digits, not four. Interesting. Don't know about so, that. The cartoons, the cartoons, the Mickey Mouse and Jiminy Crickets. If you see cartoons in Japan, they have five, five, four fingers and a thumb, right? And all of ours have three fingers. I've never noticed that. That's uh, yeah, you know why? interesting. Walt Disney said it cost back. This is back in 1926 or 27. To have an extra finger on those cartoons with all the multiple drawings they had to do cost a couple million dollars extra. <laughs> way back so leave a finger off, they could you know because they have to make like 60 drawings a second or something like that. Yeah. So, plus, he said if if he put four fingers on Mickey Mouse, it would look like he had a bunch of bananas in his hand. So, <laughs> So yeah, uh, yeah. In Japan, they and plus the the Japanese. Uh, uh, what, what's the, uh, the what? The, oh, the the ones that chop off the fingers. Yeah, what the kind Yaku- of the yakuza. They yakuza. chop off the fingers if you've been disloyal or something. So you know, it's not a good thing to walk around with uh, three fingers. All right. Well, I want to be respectful of both of y'all's times. Rachel, did you have anything else you wanted to to end with? Oh, I could talk to you guys forever. I feel I'm honored that you guys could join us today. And I think this was a great discussion and we will share this with you um, when it's edited and I can't wait for it to go live. It's been an honor to be with Dr. Urbanic. Well, it's great to be, for me to be back with you again, Greg. I remember you very well. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.